Welcome to Bookends, a virtual book club brought to you by The Team Approach. The theme this year on Bookends is leadership, and today we are welcoming back Carol Kinsey Goman to our program. Carol's newest book is The Silent Language of Leaders. To obtain a copy of our featured book, please visit www.silentlanguageofleaders.com. You can access today's podcast and all of our Bookends programs by visiting iTunes, or you can go to bookendsbookclub.net. At the Bookends site, you can also visit our resource blog for free chapters and resources provided by our featured authors. After reading The Silent Language of Leaders, you may want to discuss it, and we've created a place for you to do this. Simply sign in to LinkedIn, search groups, and join the group called Bookends the Discussion. In this LinkedIn group, you can pose questions and discuss issues with your peers, and you can dialogue with our Bookends featured authors who are members of the group. Be sure to invite your friends to join the group and listen and discuss with you. I am your host, Susan Stamm, and I'd like to introduce Dr. Carol Kinsey Goman, who is an executive coach management consultant and keynote speaker for corporations, associations, and government agencies, serving clients in 24 countries. Through her firm, Kinsey Consulting Services, she works with executives and senior managers, coaching them on leadership, communication, and the hidden impact of body language. Carol is a faculty member for the Institute of Management Studies and has served as adjunct faculty at John F. Kennedy University in the International MBA program, at the University of California in the Executive Education Department, and for the Chamber of Commerce of the United States at their Institutes for Organizational Management. The Silent Language of Leaders is Carol's 11th book, and she is a regular contributor to Forbes.com and the On Leadership column for the Washington Post. When she is not traveling as a world speaker and consultant, Carol lives in Berkeley, California. Carol can be reached at her home office at 510-526-1727. She can also be accessed through her email account, which is C for Carol, C Goman, G-O-M-A-N, at ckg.com. To view videos and for more information on today's selection, please visit www.silentlanguageofleaders.com. Carol, thanks for coming back on uh, being our guest again on Bookends. Welcome back. This is great. Thank you. Well, Carol, uh, you got my attention pretty quickly in the introduction of your new book when you said that our words and body, when our words and body language are out of alignment, people are going to believe what they see and not what we say. And I thought that was pretty important uh, input for leaders. Why, why is this so? Well, let me tell you through a real-life example. I was speaking at a conference board meeting in New York, and I was on stage as one of the panelists, and I was watching the man before me, who was a senior vice president from a Fortune 50 company, speak first. And I noticed that he was a great speaker, that, you know, he was one of those people that had great stories and he had good body language and nice open gestures and he made eye contact and the audience was engaged. They were smiling. They were leaning forward. And at the end of his remarks, he said, and now I'm open for questions. And as he made that announcement, he crossed his arms across his body. Mm. Now, I watched that audience because I was on stage, and I saw exactly what happened in their behavior, and that is they went from engagement to bewilderment. 
they did that because of what I knew was happening in their brains. When they study uh, through EEGs, when they study peaks and valleys of brainwave activity, they found that there's one valley called N400. And N400 is where your brainwaves dip when someone is speaking nonsensical language. So if I just can't understand what you're saying, my brainwaves just go down into this little valley. Hmm. Well, it's the same valley that our brainwaves dip into when someone's verbal announcement says one thing and their body language says another. So the moment he said, I'm open for questions, and then did a closed, crossed-arm gestures, everybody's brains went down into that little valley, and they literally couldn't think of a question to ask him hmm. because the message was so confused. It was as if he was speaking nonsense. And because body language is our first language, it's our most primitive language, and it is fast and unconscious. If you have to choose, and you're not choosing logically or consciously, but you will automatically default choose to believe what the body says. Wow, really interesting. You also point out in the book that technology has made body language certainly more important for leaders today than it has ever been before. What's going on that's contributing to this? Well, there are actually three factors, and the first is technology. You know, we used to think that technology enabled us to communicate with one another without face-to-face -face interaction. But the whole visual technology revolution, led by companies like Cisco with their telepresence and Hewlett-Packard um, with their product Halo, um, all sorts of, of companies are coming into the market with large and small screen ways, not, not even to mention Skype and all the things that are happening there, of us to now connect visually. So a lot of these lost almost signals of body language that we didn't think we needed are now going to be displayed for each other to see. So that's number one, why it's, why it's more important than ever. Second reason is the research around body language has taken it out of the anecdotal and observational right into the research labs. It's, it's amazing. There's, a, there's just tons of research around this, and, and one that I particularly like is from MIT Media Lab, where they have developed something called a sociometer. A sociometer is a little gizmo that you wear around your neck, kind of like a large necklace, and what it does is records all of the, or not all, but many of the nonverbal signals that you send. So how close you get to one another, how much head nods are, are exchanged, um, the kind of, of verbal overlap that happens or doesn't happen in a conversation. And what they can find without recording any of the conversation, simply these nonverbal cues, is in two minutes with over 80% accuracy. In fact, it's up to about 87%. Mm -hmm. They can tell in a negotiation who's going to win. They're going to tell if you're applying for a job whether or not you're going to get the job. And the third force that's made body language just so important for leaders is the entire global workforce. And we know that when you go cross-culture, all sorts of body language signals change. Some don't, but many do. And to be 
aware of the nonverbal nuances when you're dealing with a global team is hugely important to the success of that team. Well, I hope that sociometer uh, goes on the market pretty soon. I, I would think that many of us would love to have one of those, Carol. Uh, can, you, can you talk to us a little bit about how our brain, and, and in fact, in the book, you talk about our having three brains. Can you talk a little bit about how it helps us process verbal and nonverbal messages? What's actually happening in our brains? Sure. Well, the, the three-brain model starts with the reptilian brain, which is the oldest and that's the part, that's the brain stem, and, and it controls oh, body functions like your heart rate and your breathing and your balance and your temperature, things that you don't have to think about. It's all controlled by that base, that oldest brain. The cortical brain, which is the one that we kind of think of as the executive function of the brain, is, is the newest part of the brain, and it has the two cerebral hemispheres, and that handles language and analysis and strategizing. And all of our conscious thought is there. So when we plan something, that's the part of the brain that we're using. But the limbic brain is the middle brain. And it's the middle both in terms of evolution and in terms of placement in the head. Um, and it includes things like the amygdala. And the amygdala is the fear section of the brain, the minute you get a signal, it hits the amygdala and it decides immediately, friend or foe, danger, threat, or this is okay. And because of that, it is the limbic brain that is responsible both for generating and for interpreting body language signals. It's also why so many body language signals are universal. So if you look around the world and, uh, let's say, uh, if, particularly if you're a female because it's a very feminine gesture, you found you have just won the lottery, women tend to put their hand on their chest. It's like, oh, isn't that wonderful? That's limbically controlled. When you see a friend, you automatically do what's called an eyebrow flash. That is, your eyes open slightly wider than normal and your eyebrows go up all over the world. And when it executive doesn't want to talk about whatever it is you've just asked him or her, you will see those lips compress and retract. And all of those signals will be the same whether you're in Sao Paulo, Singapore, or San Francisco. Now, they may be displayed a little differently because of cultural norms about when it's appropriate to display certain emotions. But anything that's controlled by the limbic system is going to be universal. That's great. So I was also pretty interested in, in um, your uh, discussion about how we actually became wired for body language, um, and you've already alluded to this just a little bit, but could you tell us a little bit more about where this wiring comes from and some of our uh, early um, um, uh, generations of humans that came long before us? Yeah, well, this is the theory from evolutionary psychology, and that is before we could write before we could read, before we could speak, what we did was send signals non-verbally. So when someone approached me, again, that, that limbic part of the brain, that, that amygdala, which was in full high alert all the time, had to make a determination very quickly whether this was a threat or a friendly person. So we did that by their facial expressions, by the way they walked, 
by where their hands were. And this wiring is so apparent today that, for instance, if, if in our prehistory someone approached us and they had their hands hidden, let's say they were behind their back or hidden in their clothing, that would be a signal of danger because we couldn't see what was in their hands. We didn't know if they had a rock, a club, and some sort of knife, some sort of implement to do us harm. So we would immediately take that as a negative or at least a danger signal. That's not so important in today's business world, but I'm telling you if you stand up and give a speech and you keep your hands in your pockets or you're behind a lectern and you keep your hands down low where people can't see them, something in the brain, that ancient wiring in the brains of the audience is going to just be on alert. And they're not going to say, oh, she didn't show her hands, so um, I don't trust her. Or, gee, he kept his hands in his pocket, so there must be something wrong. They're simply going to say there was something about that. I don't don't know. I didn't quite get it. Did you believe him? Hmm. So that is, it's instant. It's unconscious. And because we're not aware that it's happening, it's even more powerful. It's really fascinating. You, you also mentioned the work of Drew Weston, who is the author of The Political Brain. Could you tell us a little about how curb appeal has impacted some of the prominent leaders in our collective political memory and perhaps also in current times? Oh, yeah, this is, this is really fun. In fact, I was just asked by the Washington Post to contribute an article, which I'll talk about in a minute, but to contribute an article on the um, debate, the first GOP, and the second GOP debate where Sarah Bachman was involved and they wanted me to compare Sarah Bachman's body language with, with Sarah, uh, with Michelle Bachman's lang- uh, body language with, with Sarah Palin. So I'll get mm-hmm. into that in a minute. But Drew Weston was the first one that got my attention with this idea of curb appeal. And his observation is that after party affiliation, the most important determination of how you will vote is what he calls curb appeal. And that's the emotional or gut feeling that you get when you drive by a candidate a few times on TV. Like the curb appeal for your house, you know, when you right. drive by your house, you're trying to sell it, you want to have it make look good from that driver's perspective. The same thing happens on television. And this was brought into our awareness in the 1960 debate, the first televised debate between, and this is between Nixon and Kennedy. And it was very interesting for anybody that was observing body language because Nixon was ill. He just had the flu or something. He was kind of of pale. He was perspiring a lot. And in spite of that, he refused to put makeup on. So he came into the studio wearing a gray suit and not looking well. And Kennedy came in wearing makeup, looking energetic, looking healthy, He looked at the camera when he answered questions instead of the narrator or the the person who was asking the questions, which made him look like he was addressing people in their living rooms and telling them the straight story. Mm -hmm. The reason this became so important was that people that had only listened to the debate on radio said that Nixon had won it. But people that had watched, the majority of people that had watched the TV show said it was Kennedy. So never again would a presidential candidate go on television without understanding the impact of how they looked, the gestures that they used, and 
and how that affected their curb appeal. Now, last election, I was asked to blog for the State Department, so I was watching then-Senator Obama and and Senator McCain as they were debating. And there were certain things in their curb appeal that enhanced and certain things that were detrimental. So with President Obama, he had a fabulous smile. He has a fabulous smile. It's the kind of smile that reaches his eyes, which is what you call a real smile. It crinkles the corners, gives him crow's feet. It elevates the skin around his cheeks. It's a wide smile, and it's absolutely the expression that human brains prefer. We can spot a smile the length of a football field. We just love that. One of the things that was depleting on his curb appeal was his tendency to tilt back his head when he was considering something or listening to someone Mm -hmm. else. And that tilt of the head back has that impression of looking down your nose. So it added to that perspective as him being arrogant or above it all. And Senator McCain did a lovely thing, and I think it was the third debate, in which he went into the audience and touched someone. And touch is the most powerful and primitive nonverbal signal. And when he touched that person in the audience, who was a, um, I don't know if it was retired or active service person, but he was a serviceman, he just, the, the man just glowed. And that was a wonderful moment. His, McCain had several uh, detracting features, but one was something that he couldn't control, which was his blink rate. People with a high blink rate look like, can look like they're being deceptive or highly stressed. Well, McCain's blink rate was his normal blink rate, but because it was so much higher than Obama's, it made him look more stressed. Hmm. So that's how curb appeal and how the nonverbals can get right into the middle of a political mix when you're when you're looking at at the curb appeal of, you know, candidates that you're going to vote for. So this, the next thing I just want to talk quickly about was the the Washington Post item that they had me uh, look at Bachman and, and Sarah Palin, and both of them had what's called baby face bias, hmm. which is a term that, that we use to describe the tendency that's found in human beings across all age ranges and cultures to attribute innocence and candor in faces that have features similar to an infant's. So if you have a round head, if you have big eyes, if you have a small nose, if you have a high forehead, if you have a short chin. Now, both Bachman and Palin have the advantage, which is a warm cue advantage. And when you look at leaders of any kind, political or in business, you're looking for two things primarily. You're looking for their authority cues, which are displayed through height and space, and you're looking for their warmth, empathy, likability cues. Babyface bias gives you an advantage on the warm cue spectrum. So both of those women had had that advantage. Um, But when you overuse warm cues, Something happens. There was a Harvard Business School professor, uh, Teresa Mobley, who wrote an article called Brilliant but Cruel that says we often see those competence and status signals and warmth as being negatively related. So warm leaders don't appear as intelligent 
as those who are sterner or tougher, and tougher leaders are judged as far less likable. So when you look at what Sarah Palin did in 2008, when she was in the vice presidential debate, she overused warm gestures. She did a lot of winks, a lot of smiles. She had the baby face bias, which in turn then lowered the perception of her authority and power. And what Bachman did differently was she stood very tall. Of course, she wore high heels because you want to be as tall as you can if you're a female and looking to display height when you don't have it. But she also made very sweeping, broad gestures in which she carved out a great deal of space around her. So she broadened the illusion of her height and, and, and use of space by using her hand gestures in that way. Now, that's really fascinating. And I'm wondering, you know, as you look into the coming election, uh, the next election, is there any advice that, um, that you would offer to, to folks that are uh, looking in that direction? Well, you know, the interesting thing is they have, I don't think there's a politician out there now that isn't working with a nonverbal, probably hmm. a, a, you know, a communication coach in all sorts of ways, and they certainly understand the nonverbals. So what I would say is for people watching the elections to be aware that they're going to be impacted whether they know it or not or whether they uh, you know, think it's silly to be or not. They're going to be impacted by things like blink rate, by things like hand gestures, by things like facial expressions. So just start to note those and say, am I being swayed by these things or is it really something that my, you know, that my preferred candidate is is talking about? So it's it's a very interesting. You know, one of the things I do is I have a counter, and I sit and I simply count blink rates because it's it's pretty much shown, at least in the research out of Boston University, that the highest blink rate can, uh, candidate, when particularly when it gets down to two, is going to lose. Hmm. So a little thing like that, you wouldn't think that would be so important, but but it is amazingly important. So just to be aware that we are being influenced by things beyond what we think we're being influenced. Fascinating, really fascinating. We should all uh, um, uh, close our eyes and listen to the uh, the debates. Yes, and <laughs> listen then for turn, content, and then turn off the the, the volume and mm-hmm. just watch the watch. body language and see what that tells you. Because yep. because literally some particularly in a, de- in a real debate. Uh, well, I say real debate because the GOP debate was pretty much a, uh, a debate against Obama who wasn't there and not against one another. But when someone mm. comes at you with something that you didn't prepare for, your body will belie or will tend to belie, even if you've been coached. Mm-hmm. You can be coached to do a great speech, but you can't coach the limbic system not to respond to surprise or anger right. or fear in some way. So watch that body language. It will also tell you a lot. That's fascinating. Well, when leaders uh, negotiate, they can learn a lot from observing the body. And, of course, negotiation is a key uh, role that leaders are playing in many organizations. Can you share uh, some of the key things that someone in this negotiating uh, kind of role might want to tune into? Yeah, I think the most important thing for a negotiator to do is to is to identify somebody's baseline before they go into the negotiation. Now, here's what I mean. We all have certain idiosyncratic behaviors. For instance, that 
vice president that I talked about, he may fold his arms every time he asks for questions, or maybe mm-hmm. he, he got cold, or maybe that's a really comfortable way for him to stand. Uh, but we won't know that unless we know him better than that one speech. So before you get into the heart of the negotiation, while you're having coffee, while you're doing small talk, while you're talking about the latest uh, sports scores or a new movie you just saw, watch how animated a person is, watch how they use their their hands and arms, watch how they stand, look at how they sit, uh, see if they lean towards you, notice the kind of smiles they use. I mean, just become more aware of the body language they display when they're relaxed because it's going to be deviation from baseline that will give you the most cues. And by the way, in a 30-minute negotiation, two people can send over 800 different nonverbal signals. So if you go in just focusing on the words and neglecting those 800 signals, you're going to miss a lot. Well, let's say you're, you're in a negotiation and for some reason the other party seems to have shut down. What can you do to get them reengaged? Well, first of all, what you're looking for is engagement and disengagement signs. So when someone's engaged, they're looking at you, they're nodding, they're leaning forward, they're smiling. They, they may even... Um, Uh, have their pupils dilate slightly under very positive feelings for you. They will have open and flowing gestures. They will do a lot of gesturing with their palms up. They will probably square. If they're seated, they will square their shoulders to you. You know, those, they will mirror you, which is a, an amazing sign that somebody's right with you. If they start to mirror your body language, if, they, if you have your arm resting a certain way and they move their arm to rest in that way, which is totally unconscious most of the time, um, that, that's a, a fabulous sign. But if you notice the opposite, if you notice those compressed lips or maybe pupils constricting or people looking away, not looking at you, not looking at the contract, not looking at the product, not looking at whatever it is that you had to to show. You, You find them leaning back. You see them cross both their arms and their legs, particularly in reaction to something you just said. First thing you need to do is check your own body posture because if you're exhibiting any of those closed or disengaged behaviors, they may be mimicking you. They may be mirroring you and and you don't even know that. So check and see if you're sending a signal that you really didn't intend to. Another thing is to do nothing but recognize that you've just hit someone's hot button. When you said a certain thing, they behaved a certain way. So you might want to drop that for a while, bring that point back, and see if they react in the same way. Hmm. And then use that as insight when you continue to negotiate. Now, if you saw that folded arm, crossed leg motion, which, by the way, in the history of sales, no one has made a sale when someone is seated in that, both with their arms and their legs crossed. It's time to get them out of that position. So you can do that by handing them a business card, a cup of coffee, a brochure. Do anything to get their arms uncrossed. It's why many speakers will start out with something like, how many of you are here from... Oklahoma, you know, to see, and you think it's because they're looking to see how many of you are here from Oklahoma, and what they're trying to do is get those people with their arms crossed to change their position because they're going to be more receptive as a speaker to what you say if you can do that. You also might need to just change your pitch. 
you know, if you, and I don't mean your vocal tone, what I mean is you might need to go to plan B because plan A isn't working and they're telling you with their bodies, even before they know it sometimes, even before, because that limbic brain has made a decision, it has said threat or we don't like this and it has made the body do something even, and it could be up to 10 seconds before the conscious mind says, I don't like that. And then, of course, you might bring their disengagement behavior to their, you know, to their attention. I don't mean that you say, hey, your arms are crossed, you don't like this, but I do mean it might be time to say, you know, is this a bad time for us to talk? We could postpone this meeting to tomorrow. Would that work better for you? And see if you can't get them you know, in a better mood another day. Yeah. Well, I think it's going to be pretty important in, in this role to be able to know when someone is being truthful with us. Are there some tips that you could share on how we could read uh, the truthfulness of the person we're negotiating with? Well, sure. First of all, remember we're all a bunch of liars. I mean, we fake cry when we're infants, and when we're toddlers, we can be covered in chocolate and swear to you that we weren't the one in the cookie jar. <laughs> you know, I mean, we are just, we are born, we are practically born little liars. Uh, and then as we get older, we learn to, to deceive or lie for a, a myriad of social reasons, including not to get the blame for something. So when you're looking for bluffing signals, what you're actually looking for are stress signals. There is no indicator of a lie. In other words, if you look up to the right, doesn't mean you're lying. If you look down to the left, doesn't mean you're lying. What happens is that when you are lying, according to functional MRI machines that, are, that track this, you are using many more parts of the brain than when you're telling the truth. Because when you think of telling the truth, it's a simple process. You remember what happened, you said it. When you're lying or bluffing, you're remembering the truth, you're remembering not to say that, you're remembering now what the lie is going to be, and then if there are follow-up questions, how are you going to answer those? There's a great deal of activity that goes on in the brain, and that increases the stress in the body, including things like adrenaline that goes to the tip of your nose, so sometimes you'll see people rubbing their nose, like in that famous I did not have sex with that woman uh, <laughs> announcement. A lot of, they call it the Pinocchio effect, you know, a lot of nose touching because the adrenaline hits the tip of the nose. You may see an increased blink rate, and if you've noticed their baseline blink rate and it all of a sudden increases, just when they say one particular thing, that's, that's an indicator that something's going on, or it, or it increases when you say something. There's, you have triggered some sort of stress. In fact, any kind of face touching. If you remember a child when they're first learning to lie and they say the lie and then their hand goes over their mouth like, oh, my gosh, did I really say that? Well, we've learned that that's kind of a giveaway. So we don't do that anymore as adults. But what we do, we still have that same inclination. So the hand will go. It'll touch the lip. It'll touch the side of the mouth. It may touch the chin, the ear. The, it has a tendency to go up to the face. And particularly if face touching, again, that's why baseline is so important. Deviation from baseline is what you're looking at. Somebody that's touched their face all during the negotiation and while they were having coffee, that's not a signal of anything except they do a lot of face touching. There may also be a, a difference in response time. When people are lying and they've rehearsed the lie, they seem to answer a question too quickly. And when they haven't rehearsed the lie, they take a beat too long to answer. 
There could be things like arrested gestures, a shrug that stops halfway or only involves one shoulder, um, hidden hands. A lot of times people uh, will stop gesturing with their hands, particularly with, with gestures that indicate like direct, that, 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 that help explain. Like I turned right and you move your hand to the right, they'll stop those gestures. In fact, they'll maybe even try to stop all gestures because they know their bodies may give them away so they become very still. Hmm. They may lick their lips. The timing of their gestures, if they use them, may change. Somebody who is has rehearsed something that isn't factual may not have the same kind of timing of gestures. Body language, a gesture should slightly precede or occur right when you speak, not after. They may lick their lips, and that's that kind of tension that dries your mouth. And then there's eye contact that, of course, many people think that if you don't give eye contact, that means you're lying. And in actuality, too little can be an indicator, particularly sometimes with children who can't meet your eyes. Other times it's too much. You know, too much eye contact can be just as indicative. So there's all sorts of little signals that if you take together and you look at the timing and you also understand their baseline, so you know if these are deviation from baseline or simply normal for that person, you will get much better at detecting truthfulness. That's great. Well, another really important topic for leaders is, of course, the area of collaboration. And in the book, you share some uh, interesting research from Naomi Eisenberger on feeling rejected. Could you tell us a little about this research and what leaders can learn from it? Yeah, this was my one of my favorite uh, pieces of research. I actually heard Naomi speak when I was at UCLA at a neuroleadership conference. So this was this was just a lot of fun. What what happened was if you were the participant in the research, you would go into a room, and in front of you would be a computer screen, and you would be told you're going to play a game with two other people that are in two other rooms also looking at the computer screen. And to represent you, you would get a little avatar, a little cartoon-like character that was going to be you on the screen to play this game, and they would likewise get their avatars. So that was the setup. You would be in a room by yourself, with a screen, a little avatar, and two other little avatars to play a game. The game was kind of a simple game, sort of a, like a ball toss from one to another. And everything went fine until about halfway through the game, the ball tosses start to change, and you start to be excluded. So pretty soon these other two people are playing ball only with themselves and not with you. <laughs> now, they stopped the experiment at that Point. And they put the person who has been excluded in a functional MRI and they see, lo and behold, that the part of the brain that's active is the same part of the brain that lights up or is active with the suffering component of pain. <laughs> so literally, if you exclude me, if you break my heart or if you break my arm, you activate the same part of my brain. Now, here's the interesting thing, or another interesting thing, because I think that's pretty interesting. But when the subject is then told, you know, there weren't two other people playing the game. That was a computer-generated game that we set up in order to generate certain feelings in you. The subject still felt it was something personal, 
something they had done. Fascinating. Now, that shows you how easy it is to exclude someone. And when you think of collaboration and you think of what you and, – and that was all nonverbal. There wasn't one word that was said. It was simply, I'm playing over here and you're not playing anymore. Now, yeah. when I've seen this dynamic in a meeting. So let's say you have a leader who has a couple and, and, and his or her team that's going to collaborate on something. But that leader, like we all do, has some friends and favorites and people that we really think have the better ideas. When those people speak, the leader gives them more eye contact, leans forward, smiles, nods his head in encouragement. When someone else on the team speaks, maybe this person is new, came from another department, we don't know them, we don't value their opinion as much. We say we want collaboration, but if you watch that leader with those people that they don't particularly encourage, they will do things like saying, yes, I'm interested in what you're saying, and then all of a sudden they'll look down at their smartphone or they'll <laughs> stand up and get a cup of coffee or they'll, their affect, their smiles, their nods, that will all just kind of go away. Now, it wasn't anything that leader said. So if I talk to the leader afterwards and I say, do you realize what just happened there? He'll say, let's say it's a he, he'll say, well, what do you mean? I told everybody I wanted their input without realizing at all that he told them one thing with his words and another thing with his body language, and he actually rejected, without saying anything, the ideas of three or four people on the team. Now, and I always tell those people the least you can do because they found out in the Eisenberg research that because the same part of the brain was activated when you were rejected or suffering from a physical hurt, both of those responded to Tylenol. So the least that that leader can do is bring a bottle of Tylenol to the meeting. <laughs> oh, that's great. Well, you just shared how important it is, it is for us to help others feel included and, and accepted. And um, one of the ways that you talk about our accomplishing this in the book is um, using our voice. Uh, and I think probably few of us think about how our voice might impact that. Could you share that interesting research that uh, is in the book regarding physicians' voices and tell us what we can do to evaluate how we might be coming across? Yeah, this is, this is also fascinating research. A researcher made audio tapes of doctors and their patients in a session. Now, half of those doctors had been sued before for malpractice. Half of the doctors had not. So she brought the tapes into her students, and she said, can you guess, just by listening to these, which physicians were sued and which weren't? But here's the catch. The recordings were content filtered. That is, all the students were listening to was a low-frequency garble. But they also could hear the tone, the volume, the pace, the energy, uh, if they were emphatic, if they sounded hostile or dominant or warm. And by only hearing that, the students were absolutely accurate in dividing the doctors. So they knew who had been sued and who had never been sued simply based on the tone of their voice. It's really fascinating. Well, 
you also share a study from the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology that suggests that speakers compared to email senders were 40% more effective in communicating things like enthusiasm, skepticism, empathy, sympathy, irony, doubt, belief, encouragement, caution, and even humor. So to wrap up our time today, Carol, could you share the findings of the Cisco study and some of the tips for leaders who really, you know, all of us have to use technology so much more to communicate today. How would you coach us to do this more effectively? Sure. The Cisco study looked at how, how face-to-face or highly uh, what, what they call um, rich media, like like the Cisco telepresence, obviously, which is a a full size, so you can see body language to the to the height of, of a conference table. You can see body language, directional sound. I mean, it's, it's very, very much like being there. Not totally, but very much like being there. And what they found when they compared face-to-face or that very rich-mediated kind of interaction was it took two weeks with just computer-mediated interactions, so emails, you know, that kind of thing, in order to equal one face-to-face encounter. So mm-hmm. you can do it. You can create those relationships virtually, but it's going to take a much longer time. And the richer, the better. What I mean by that is leanest are things like email where you get nothing but text, uh, IMs, text messaging, that kind of thing, a little bit richer, are voice teleconferences, a little bit richer are kind of standard video conferences, uh, and, and richer still are these telepresence kinds of meetings, and richest is face-to-face. So the richer, the better. And trust, particularly, is much easier to generate in, in media-rich circumstances, which is why I tell all my clients, particularly those that are looking to bond virtual teams, if you bring that team together once first, Mm -hmm. then they will be able to work together virtually so much better. It is an expensive thing, and a lot of companies really believe they can't do it, but what I tell them is you are going to pay for it down the line if you don't. And also, this idea of silence, and you and I have both been victimized and probably done this to other people, and that is not responding to email or voicemail. When we don't, when we get busy because we're doing so many other things, what happens to the other team members is that they then throw in their own meaning, why she didn't get back to me. Mm-hmm. And that is so much of the kind of problems that happen when people are only connected with these leaner mediums. So all of us then have to you know, work virtually to, to some extent. The best advice I have is to mix it up. Don't do all of your connecting on email. You know, throw in a phone call, throw in a teleconference, get out and meet some people. I know CEOs who have totally virtual organizations, but they go every month from one site to another to meet with people face-to-face. Same thing if you work virtually. I think it's a really good idea to once a week, once a month, whatever, get back into that office if you can and you know, touch people, see people, get connected in a way that you simply can't get in a virtual environment. 
Remember that you are being seen. I know this sounds silly, but I've seen so many people on telepresence, for instance, who simply forget. You know, they're so used to, to, you, you know, they're looking at a screen, so they forget other people can see them on that screen. It's 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 just a very funny thing. We're we're used to looking at screens and not having people look at us. Well, that's going to stop. That's practically stopped already with all the things we talked about as we began with the Skypes and all of the things that are going on. When you are seen, your warmth cues are going to be most important. That is, you can have all the status in the world, but if you project that status in a meeting, what happens is you come across as someone who doesn't care about the other participants, someone who isn't empathetic, doesn't want to listen to their ideas. So you need to tone down. Now, status signals are great. Many times what you want to be seen is that you're most competent, most confident, most high status, most authoritative self. But when you get in this visual mediated world, you want to cue up your warmth status and you want to cue up your warmth signals because that's when people will really listen to you. And then the same advice that I give people in face-to-face interaction is what I would give you in mediated, virtual, face-to-face interaction. And that is, it doesn't matter what you meant. It matters what your audience thinks you meant. Mm -hmm. Going back to that first example we talked about, that senior VP, I never asked him why he crossed his arms. Because as a body language coach, my interest would be Do you know that when you cross your arms, most people in the audience are going to believe that you have just closed them off and their reaction is going to be predictable, their their behavior? So that's the most important thing. You may rub your nose because it itches or you have a cold, but if you're in the middle of negotiation, it may look as if you've just said something untoward. You need to realize that it, it's certainly your, your real intent is, is often shown, always shown through your body language, but also things that you didn't intend. So it's in the eye of the beholder. And then finally, I was listening to a wonderful man speak about leadership, uh, one of the fathers of leadership, um, professor at UCLA, has written probably 130 books, and he said, someone in the audience said, you know, I think I heard uh, you speak before, and did you say that leadership was 85% character? And this man stopped and he said, uh, he said, that sounds like me. He said, but I'd change that now. He said, leadership is 100% character. Hmm. Well, I think that body language displays your character. You know, you can be tricky and you can stand up and make one great speech and have excellent body language that really supports that speech because you've worked with a coach. But at the end of the day, you can't keep that up. You can't do that 24-7. So the best body language is always going to be from leaders who are absolutely congruent with what they say and what they really believe. 
That's great, Carol, and such important and timely information uh, for all of us um, today. And uh, we thank you again for joining us on Bookends and generously sharing your wisdom and your work with us. Uh, there's so much more we could have talked about. We really only skimmed the surface with your book, and I do hope that folks will pick up a copy. Um, to get a copy, once again, of The Silent Language of Leaders, please go to www.silentlanguageofleaders.com. And once again, following our interview today, we invite you to join this conversation on leadership by joining a group on LinkedIn called Bookends the Discussion, where you can pose questions and have discussions with your colleagues and peers, and also bookend authors who are members of the group. All of our Bookends podcasts can be found on both iTunes and also at bookendsbookclub.net. And check out our resource blog for a free chapter of today's selection. Bookends is brought to you by The Team Approach. Our producer is John David Bowman. I'm Susan Stamm, and thank you for listening. 